Welcome to Descriptive, a podcast about JavaScript and other things. I'm your host, Khalil, and this is episode 17. What's going on with Angular? Just a quick announcement here. Uh, Pascal Precht, who was the guest on this show and talked to us about Angular, contacted us the day after we recorded the show uh, to tell us that a couple of things that he was talking about on the show are actually not true anymore um, because Angular is just um, changing so fast. So, um, or Angular 2 specifically. So he, he sent us a couple of links that we are putting in, into the show notes. So if you're interested in what those details were, just go to descriptive.audio and look for episode 17 and check out the show notes. That's where you'll find it. Okay, thanks very much and uh, enjoy the show. Uh, welcome to Descriptive. My name is Khalil and I'm here with Henning. Hey, how's it going? And uh, today we're going to talk about Angular 2 and we have a guest um, on the show and the guest is Pascal Precht. Um, he is a developer advocate, uh, the, the maker of Angular Translate, also into web components and Polymer. And uh, he's a Vim enthusiast that runs ThoughtRam, which is the company that he's running with some with a friend, I guess. Hey, Pascal. Hey there. Hey, uh, thanks for coming on. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to be here. Thank you. So you are you are our dedicated uh, Angular exp expert for today because uh, uh, we're going to basically we're going to try to 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 dive into what's going on with Angular a little bit. This is more like a panel show. Normally, what what I'm doing here um, is interviews with developers where we go back into their career like where this where they started with programming and stuff like that but this is not this kind of show today it's going to be more like a, a little bit uh, like a conversation about what's going on with with angular so um which is cool because i think i'm also not very interesting in my story and everything ah so. come on ah. <laughs> not true you're like you're like a little uh, rising superstar angular dude uh, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Um, so let's let's try to um, let's tr just start with the with the ngconf keynote. So that's uh, like a while ago. When was it? Like in January or February or something like that? Well, the the conference took place in, in March. Actually, uh, it was the I think it was the third March or something in Salt Lake City, uh, Utah. Okay. And yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, so the the keynote was given by Igor and Brad, and they were kind of talking about what's what's coming in, um, what's coming in Angular two, the kind of little bit on the state of Angular one, and uh, that's basically Angular two is is I think something that we're a little bit interested in. So, um, so. Can you can you say can you say something about what what you what what are the like mo most notable changes um, that are coming towards Angular two from Angular one? Yeah, sure. So Angular two is one big change. <laughs> no, no, it's not. So well, th there are there's a lot of stuff going on, and and there are in fact a lot of changes. So. With with Angular two, um, there are a lot of 
problems that the team tries to address um, that we currently have with Angular 1 and also with the fact that the, the platform changes and that the, the platform changes that end users uh, have. So for example, things like mobile devices and uh, web components and all that kind of stuff. So Angular 1 uh, was designed, I think, it's almost, yeah, it's five years ago or something, it, or, or almost six years ago, so since 2009. And back then, we didn't have things like web components or, well, we, we had smartphones, we had tablets, um, but it wasn't, it wasn't such a big thing that, that websites or web applications have to run on, on uh, mobile devices and browsers. So, um, yeah, so Angular 1 grew over time and features were added over time. And so APIs are now super big and, and kind of confusing and everything. And um, so, yeah, with Angular 2, um, we, we try to, or, or the team tries to, to solve um, a lot of these problems. So um, there will be new, new uh, concepts for how to, uh, how change detection um, is done in the framework. Um, there's a new concept of actually how to build the applications because um, it will embrace the, the native technology. So it basically goes back to the standards. It, you will have less Angular specific stuff in your code when you write Angular 2 code because, um, for example, uh, when you write applications in Angular 2, you don't have to, but you can write them in ES6, for example. You can, uh, it uses web components technology, so you don't have concepts like transclusion anymore and, and, and stuff like that. So, mm -hmm. yeah, there, there's a lot of stuff happening uh, in order to, to make a framework that not only, not only works today, but will also work in the future with future technologies. Yeah, yeah. Um, that sounds really cool. So, so is it going to be like super, super lightweight when you say they're kind of trying to optimize it for, for mobile? Are you going to use just a part of the application or um, of the framework for mobile? And Well, so, like yeah, so I think from a file size perspective, Angular 1 never really was a problem. So Angular 1 is really okay. not super big. When you compare it to other frameworks, other frameworks, it's really like super, super small. Mm -hmm. um, what I uh, meant when I said that it will be optimized for mobile devices or uh, yeah, mobile devices and touch devices is that those devices are usually um, yeah they they don't have this this um, uh, technical power this performance that that desktop devices have for example or laptops like Mac MacBooks and everything um, so uh, Angular two addresses that by being ultra fast uh, by default mm -hmm. so yeah. so there's there are like big changes happening uh, on how change detection is done and how to make the code more predictable for the framework itself so that it can actually optimize from a per, uh, performance perspective and uh, this is something that is just simply not possible with the angular one code so um, yeah that's also one of the reasons why they had to to rewrite the framework or come up with something totally new but so the fact that they make all these performance optimizations even at runtime with the code that you write um it is yeah better designed for mobile and devices awesome 
And um, I think I also saw something where where they were kind of advising not to do two-way data binding anymore. Like that's an anti-pattern today, which was like a big feature or used to be like a huge selling point for, um, or at least was something that was used to sell Angular 1 in the, in, in the past. That's right. That's right. And in fact, there are a lot of people that, that kind of, they're kind of, surprised and confused why this is not in the framework anymore. So I wouldn't say that, it, that somebody said it's like an anti-pattern. Um, there, there might be people that think that, but uh, it's definitely not something that comes from the team like that. But um, it turned out that so like this two-way data binding thing is actually super awesome because you can you can like write your application. You don't have to uh, take care of updating your model yourself and you don't have to uh, keep track of any events or anything. It's all done by Angular and Angular does that by intercepting into everything that is asynchronous, which means uh, Ajax calls or uh, user events or basically browser events and, and timeouts. Mm -hmm. So um, this is great from a from a developer perspective, because yeah, as I said, you don't have to care about that, but it has some side effects. So um, all of a sudden in your application, it's not really, you cannot really reason about anymore what is happening when a change in a model uh, happens. So if you have a change in one model and one component, this particular change, um, because of the two-way data binding, it can change something else in the application and so on and so forth. So you have really like uh, changes throughout your application that can basically happen uh, anywhere, anytime during one uh, VM turn, more or less. And um, so even if it's if it's like nice to develop like that um, because you ha have a lot of advantages, there's yeah this particular trade-off. And um, yeah, and then you have this thing, which is the, the, the digest cycle that, that tries to, or it, it, it tracks your model um, until it's stabilized, and then it updates the view accordingly. Um, the digest cycling one is actually pretty fast by default. And, and usually with the performance that Angular 1 c comes with, you're really good to go. Mm -hmm. But Angular 2 just really goes a step further. It, it removes two-way data binding, so there's no two-way data binding anymore. Um, you build components, and your components are uh, assembled as a tree. Um, you work with, with more or less plain old events uh, on DOM elements um, and, and throughout your components. So changes can really just be propagated from yeah, top down, so there's only one way. So why is it called components now and, and not directives anymore? Well, in fact, uh, they're still directives. So, so it turns out that when you, when you build directives in Angular, no, no matter if you do it with, with Angular 1 or with Angular 2, there are different kind of uh, directives than you can, that you can build, right? So let's say you, you build a kind of uh, widget directive, something like a date picker, for example. So once you've built that, you end up with a tag date picker, and then you can put it on your website, and it works. And it's pretty much a component because it's like a reusable building block that you can 
put somewhere on your website. Mm -hmm. And it also comes with this thing called isolated scope. So it is isolated from the outside world, which means changes uh, from the inside world, like from, from inside the component, um, do not affect the outside world. Um, de well, depending on some uh, configurations, but you basically you start off with a, with a widget that consumes some data um, through some attributes uh, on an element tag and then you can put it on your website. And that's pretty much what you also can call a component. Or in Angular 1, it's a directive that is restricted as an element. So it's, it's an element directive. Um, but you can also, um, you can build directives that do not introduce new widgets, like self-containing uh, widgets, but rather extending existing elements or components. So you can uh, say you, you create something like an attribute draggable, for example, that makes any element draggable that has this attribute, right? Mm -hmm. And um, this is not a component anymore. This is more something like, a, like, like what is called decorator in, mm -hmm. the, in the Angular 2 uh, world. So you have those, those kind of uh, possibilities in Angular 1, and you still have those in Angular 2, but um, the fact that you can do this in Angular 1, it, it turns out that in Angular 1, this API, to do that or to do all these kind of um, different things, th th this API is very confusing. There's this thing called directive definition object. It's like this huge object literal that has some properties that you can use yeah. and configure in order to get the right behavior for your directive. And this is also what makes Angular, or maybe this is pretty much the most complex part when it comes to Angular 1. And uh, Ang Angular 2 kind of normalizes uh, and streamlines all the most common um, directive pattern that you would usually use, which is uh, either a component or a decorator or something that is called a viewport. And a viewport directive is something like uh, what we also know as ng-repeat or the ng-if. Mm -hmm. So what is a viewport directive? A viewport directive is able to uh, change DOM structures. So like when you put an ng-if on a DOM element, you basically you decide at runtime uh, based on an expression that evaluates to something that is truthy or falsy if you want to insert that DOM element or not. And um, th this is something that, that is not done by a component or by a decorator. It's something that, that really needs to change the DOM structure. And, and this is what, what in Angular 2 is called uh, a decorator. Um, in the end, if you take a look at the source code, it turns out that the, the component and the viewport and the, the decorator um, uh, annotations and uh, directives uh, are still still directives. So they, they all extend from the directive, directive class. So mm -hmm. even if the, if the term directive is not really used uh, on, a, on a top level, um, it's still there. You still have directives. But yeah, I would say you, you mostly build components because that also encourages people to think in components and, make, uh, and, and create building blocks in, in order to assemble their application. And so that also means, because you said it's always going to be like a component uh, tree now. So it basically encourages you to um, 
use components for everything and completely um, basically compose your UI um, with components. Right, exactly. Yeah, right. So, so every uh, every Angular two application um, has one single entry point, which is also just a component. So um, you would have a component that is maybe just called app, and you can have an have, uh, you can have a tag like an HTML tag that is also called app. So you would put that tag app on your website, and then you bootstrap your application. And this is just a component. And this component itself has its own template, which again, uses its own, uh, th their, their own component dependencies. So it's basically like uh, building a element directive in Angular 1. And this element directive is nothing more than like a meta component that uh, has a template that uses other element directives. So you can more or less, um, you can more or less do the same thing in Angular 1 today if you, if you build your application that way. Mm -hmm. But there's no real benefit, right? Because, I mean, in Angular 2, you kind of, you have to build it like that. Is that correct? Um, I mean, I it think... makes sense. I think it makes, makes a lot of sense. It's easy to reason about. And I also think that their, their rendering um, engine kind of needs that. They want, well, they want right. trees. Right, right. So that's in, in fact a requirement in Angular too. But uh, so, so answering the question, if it's an advantage to do the same in Angular one, mm -hmm. uh, I would say it is because, um, well, in the end, you there, there's no there's no weird trade-off to do that. So you, you have you have basically. Um, well, well, okay. It depends. If you have an application that have that has different routing states and everything, it can be a bit more complicated, but I think it would, would make sense to put um, self-containing components really into one element directive and then let this directive just consume other directives through its template. In fact, I did that in, in one simple ap application, like a very, very small application. It's basically, um, uh, it's, it's actually the events website from our ThoughtRam website. It's like a, Actually, it's just a list of events where you can uh, see where we, which events we are attending and, and uh, which events we've attended to. And uh, this application is an Angular 1 application that just takes some JSON data. And if you take a look at the application template, like the, the, the entry point template, it's really just one single directive. And it's called, I don't know, I think it's called ThoughtRom Events App or whatever. Mm -hmm. and, and this particular app or th this particular directive is just a sort of meta directive that again has its own template because that's what you can do with directives and it has its own control on everything. And, and that's, yeah, how you can do it. So, and maybe another advantage, and like when you, when you build your applications today like that, it's, it, might, it might be easier to migrate to Angular 2 than later because mm -hmm. you have the same kind of concept uh, built in. Yeah. Speaking of the migration, um, since it's uh, pretty much a, a complete rewrite and uh, concepts are quite different, um, they touched on the, uh, the migration story briefly, and uh, I think they sort of offered two options. One of them they called Big Bang, and the other one was um, something where, at least how I understood it, was that they would probably wrap a, a 1x app inside of a 2x app. Uh, 
our 2.0 application and have the router then decide which application it routes to. Um, did they speak about that any more in detail in any of the other talks? Or, or do you know anything about that, how that's supposed to work? So, well, regarding the two options that you have, um, I think the, the Big Bang thing that you can do is nothing really that, that, that can be offered. That's something that you decide as a consumer of that framework, if you, if you make a complete rewrite or not. Um, and the incremental changes or the increment, incremental migration that you can do, well, um, so as far as I know, the new router that, that is currently developed, uh, it, it, all, it already has a, has a, a code base that is shared for, for both frameworks, Angular 1 and Angular 2. And uh, as far as I know, it will be able to um, mix in those two frameworks and, and uh, be, be able to navigate to different components uh, from different framework versions. Um, but other than that, the whole mig migration thing. So in the end, we just have to keep in mind that first, um, what what for us looks totally different when we uh, when we take a look at angular 2 code is actually not so different so because um all the all the examples that we can see right now or in fact uh, i think today uh, the new api docs and and step by step guides have been published on the angular.io website um th th we have examples on uh, in the internet that mostly uses um, ES6 and, and, and TypeScript, or formerly known as AdScript uh, in, in the examples. So a lot of people that take a look at the code there, like, they, they, for, for them, it's already new when they take a look at the syntax. Like, all of a sudden, you have classes in JavaScript. And uh, then there are those things that are annotations, and they don't know what annotations are and why they work, how they work. And at the, si at the same time, the team says that or everybody else says that you can write your Angular 2 applications in ES5 if you want to, but nobody really shows why and how that is possible. And so what we as consumer of the framework need to understand is that ES6 is a superset more or less of, of ES5, right? Everything that is valid ES5 is also valid ES6. So um, you can still just write code in ES5, you can still just run your application in ES5. And um, those annotations are currently also just like a language extension that gets transpiled to ES5. And in the end, annotations also just end up as properties on our, on our classes or on our components. And the things that we see as classes are also just functions behind the scenes. So there's actually not so much uh, heavy magic going on that we don't know about. In fact, we, we know all those kind of tools. We just have to, we just have to get used to this new syntax. Um, but yeah, so migration in general, in 1.5, in Angular 1.5, uh, so basically the, the, the next version of the Angular 1 framework, um, th this release is specifically for, for migration. And, and I think there, there's, there will be a lot of things that will help us there, but you can already do a lot of stuff today. Um, so I'm I'm not sure, I'm not entirely sure what what else the team can do in order to make it simpler. Of course, they they would probably want to support the uh, the case that you can run 
both frameworks at the same time in order to make a smooth tra uh, transition. Um, but what you can do as a consumer today is, for example, you can already start uh, write your applications in, in ES6. You can uh, already use some components of Angular 2, for example, the dependency injection framework that is developed for Angular 2 uh, is also available as something that is called the IJS. It is not exactly the same thing, but it is the, it is the dependency injection system that was originally developed for Angular 2, and it is available as standalone libraries. So you can use that dependency injection, for instance, uh, that you, and, and use that with your Angular 1 application, which can also make migration easier later. And um, when it comes to annotations, there's a project out there, I think it's called Angular-Decorate or Angular-Decorator, I'm not entirely sure, it's from a community guy. And um, so he basically wrote uh, um, ES6 decorators, I think they are. And um, with them, you can basically annotate Angular 1 code the way you would annotate Angular 2 code. So instead of having something like add component and add view, like those kind of annotations, uh, you have for Angular 1 something like add ng module, add controller, and if you write your application that way, your Angular 1 code today already looks pretty much like Angular 2. So, and then you all of a sudden you realize, hey, it's actually not that kind of that that big of a difference. Um, but of course, Angular 2 is entirely different from what it does in the end. But yeah, right. Yeah, I guess the the reason I'm asking is they took a lot of heat. At least that's what I. I experienced listening in from the outside for for their their initial announcement, or I guess how they announced it, and that there was no clear, um, yeah, thought through or laid out path. At least they didn't make it public that there was a path for one X users to 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 arrive at two X um, without doing the big bang thing. Um, but I, I think now they've put quite a bit of effort into to describing and explaining how how it might be possible to get there. Which is right. which is good, yeah. So you you mentioned TypeScript briefly. Um, I was really impressed um, with the collaboration between Microsoft and and Google, and then also the TC thirty nine committee that they sort of all got on board and 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 hashed things out, and that Angular basically has decided to adopt TypeScript, which to me makes really a lot of sense because. Um, if you're trying to write larger applications, something like that would um, seem beneficial to me. I mean, coming from C++ and now working in, in PHP, I, you know, it's uh, having basically the option of passing anything in that you want to is not always a good thing. Yeah, um, right. So, yeah, so that, that was really cool to see. How, how, have, do you have a lot of experience with that yet or have you worked with it? What's your, your take on that? Well, so it turns out that... Um... The original idea that the team had that was uh, AdScript is basically a superset of ECMAScript 6, which adds types and annotations to the language. TypeScript also comes with types, and TypeScript um, already had plans to uh, implement something that is called decorators, which is a proposed standard for ES7. So um, those two things, like annotations and decorators, they they look basically uh, the same when you use them. So they're like from a syntax perspective, they're like really just the same thing. But um, from what happens behind the scene, it's not really the same thing. So annotations is really 
like when we speak about annotations as an annotations, it's, it's, it's a feature of AdScript that is uh, implemented by one compiler out there, which is Tracer. So, and, and Tracer takes those annotations and basically uh, translates that to an annotation property on your class and adds those um, configuration to, to that property th that you wrote in that annotation. Whereas decorators, um, decorators give you as a consumer the ability to decide what a decoration does, right? So when you, when you uh, take annotations, and, and you, trans, you transpile them with Tracer, you're not in charge of what happening, what's happening with those annotations, what, what happens with that information. And uh, with a decorator, you need to, uh, or, or you, can, you can decide what a specific annotation does, which means, in fact, annotations and decorators are not the same thing, but we can build annotations with decorators. Like annotations are really like an implementation or a concrete implementation of what a decorator can do. Um, which also means when we want to transpile Angular 2 code today, or when we write, when we want to build apps in Angular 2, like to play with it, it's not out of the box possible to transpile it with uh, TypeScript. Because TypeScript uh, in version 1.5 alpha, which was recently released, um, supports all ES6 features, or at least most of them, and also the uh, decorators uh, uh, standard, the, the, the proposed standard for decorators. But it does not support annotations. So basically, if you try to use uh, TypeScript uh, in your Angular 2 application, and you use something that you know as annotations, um, TypeScript will yell at you because it doesn't know your annotations. So what you have oh, to do then, you, you have to build your, basically you have to write the decorators that basically do the stuff with your annotations that you uh, want to use. So um, currently the, the Angular 2 code is moving to TypeScript. Um, and I think or at least it only makes sense to me, uh, the, the framework will then later, once it's completely moved to, to TypeScript, it will provide uh, decorators for you so that you don't have to write them yourself. So you would still be just able to just write something like add component or add view or like all the annotations or the things that we know as annotations, we can just still use them as they are. Uh, but behind the scenes, Angular would provide them um, explicitly as decorators in order to make it work. Okay, cool. Okay, this is uh, very interesting. So I've been, I looked at some, like, uh, like an example directive or something, and it just looked to me, I mean, it had, it had those annotations on top, and you can like add a template, and I forgot all the other stuff you can do. And, uh, and then, but it's much simpler than like th this, uh, this um, huge directive definition object thing that they used to have. So right. from that, from that respect, it's, it's definitely, it's great to see that it's so much simpler, but I'm just thinking, okay, if people want to move to Angular 2 and they have a lot of directives, that's, that's really a lot of work to, to get there, right? Must be I mean, because the syntax is completely different. Yeah, right. But in the end, if you, well, it always, of course, it always depends on your specific use case and, and what you want to do. So mm -hmm. um, 
So there's, I think there's an issue on the Angular One project where John Lindquist uh, proposed a new, like, sort of facade pattern for Angular One, which is a dot component method. It's basically uh, a facade for dot directive with a specific um, directive definition object configuration. Mm -hmm. So um, that might be something that, that might help you out there uh, when you, when you um, write your directives today. But in the end, still, I guess, I, I would say that it's not that, well, yeah, it, it, it depends on, on what you want to do, and, and it always depends on what your directive does. For example, if you take a look at the um, Angular 2 non-bindable directive, so th there's a directive that you can put on an element that basically says everything that is inside that element and all the, all the children do not compile those, those elements. You, you're just not interested in them. So um, in Angular 2, it's like a, I think it's like a four liner or something because everything becomes so much simpler. I, I guess this is something that, that is true for almost all directives that are built out there. That, that if you port your existing directives from Angular 1 to Angular 2, they actually become much, much simpler. Even if the, if the um, syntax is different. But um, yeah. 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 Yeah, that's definitely, definitely great to see. <clears throat> what what is it um, with the annotations? Why is that? Why is it good to have annotations? Do you have an opinion on that or or knowledge? Because I don't know. Well, so annotations is basically um, they allow meta programming. Yeah, and and that's nice because it really allows you to uh, separate. Uh, some things. For example, if you take a look at an Angular component um, and you remove the decorators, what is left then? Um, it's just a class. Right. Ah, yeah, that's right. Uh -huh. So it's basically, it's basically just a class. So without those annotations, this particular class does not have any meaning. It's really just a class. Ah. So, and with those annotations, you can actually tell Angular, hey, uh, this particular class is actually a component or a decorator or whatever. And not only that, um, we, we, uh, like when, you, when you take a look at some like simple component examples, th there's another annotation for view, right? And, and this view annotation defines a template. So it turns out that uh, it can be you have a, that you have a component that should serve with a different template depending on what platform this component is served. For example, like if you're on a desktop uh, device or on a mobile device, depending on that, you want to load a different template. Mm -hmm. And you can easily, easily achieve that by just adding uh, annotations that know what to do. Mm. And you keep it completely separated from the actual class logic. So a class is still just a class, and by giving it an annotation, it, all of a sudden it can just become a component. Cool. So mostly we have like business logic in the in the class or or like your controller. Right. Stuff. Right. So so what we know as a control on Angular One is basically what we have in our component uh, in in Angular Two. So that's mm. that's why at NG Europe last year the team announced that there's no such a concept of controllers anymore because the component itself is actually the component. It is our uh, 
well, yeah, more or less the execution context with its uh, methods and properties. Yeah. And they also removed the, there was three different types of kind of controllery kind of functions in directors, like, right, there was like the link uh, function and then another one. And right. then the controller that you could link with your directive. And that's also gone. It's just like... Well, yeah. So, so that's basically uh, pretty much one of the, one of the most important um, uh, things that, that changes. Um, because so, like, in, as you mentioned, in Angular 1, you have this, uh, you have this uh, compile function. And then you have this link function. And actually, you can do most of the stuff of, uh, with your directives and, and those two functions are mainly in the link function. But it turns out a directive can also have a controller. Mm -hmm. Controllers in Angular 1 are actually meant to be used for uh, directive communication. Yeah. Um, but it turns out that a controller is executed before the link function, um, but you still have access to everything that the link function has. So what you can basically do as a... A directive author, you can write a directive, you can give it a controller, and you can do all your work there. You just don't care about compile and link because it's totally confusing. You just don't care about that. Yeah. So you just you just write a you just write a controller, and and that's it. And and all of a sudden you end up with a directive that is in the end just a template with a controller. Hmm. And that's pretty much the same thing that you have in Angular two, right? You have a class which is basically your controller, and it has a template through annotations. Yeah. And of course, there, there's some more stuff going on. Like, you can, you can define life cycles uh, on your component. Um, you can define uh, the, the, chain, the, the, the change detection mechanism that is used for your particular component, um, which, makes, which makes everything super fast, because all of a sudden, you can decide uh, how things are uh, change detected. Like, mm. there's no, like... Uh, like default uh, change detection going on. You can say, for example, hey, I, have a, I have this particular component and it consumes those kind of objects and those objects are immutable objects. Then you know they don't change. Then you can explicitly say, okay, so this component uh, does not have to check those particular um, subcomponents and that makes the whole thing faster. Yeah. I'm wondering, so they, in in the in the keynote they were talking about um, immutable data and how immutable data will make especially with large data sets will make angular really really fast and uh, and just like the performance i think the thing that the the graph they showed was scrolling something about scrolling table data or something like that and yeah. and if they use immutable data then basically they there's just like it goes up the perform they lose a little bit performance at at in the beginning when a lot of data is when data is being added but then later on there's absolutely no performance uh, loss at all anymore which is which is uh, crazy and um and i'm wondering so basically if i i've learned about the immutable data concept um and a little bit of functional programming from podcasts i've listened to where um this guy David Nolan, I think is his name. He, um, he's been using Ohm, which is uh, 
closure script or closure with react or something where he was basically saying okay react is awesome because you're just re-rendering all the time and then immutable is uh, data is great because because you you don't have to go you don't have to make any deep checks to check if data has changed on an object object because uh, because if there if if the reference to to the object is is different from before then it is it it, it has changed and that's all you need to check <clears throat> Right. And I was wondering if if Angular is also going, because I know that Ember is going that route, that uh, when it comes to rendering the UI, that they're just re-rendering <clears throat> the state all the time, and then they do the DOM diffing thing. And if if React, um, if Angular is also going the same kind of path. So I think, um, so there, there are two different things. So rendering and change detection and... Um, so the, the the I think the thing where where uh, immutable data structures or immutable objects are important and um, interesting is the change detection part, because as you said, like if you have a list of um, any kind of objects and those objects have properties that can change at runtime. Um, and, and you use those objects, like this particular list, to, to render a list somewhere in your application, then usually you really have to go through each object and each uh, property on that object and check if, if it has changed or not, mm -hmm. which is basically what makes the change detection system a bit slower as it, as it uh, has to be, because if you use something like immutable data structures, like immutable objects, then you know that an object itself cannot change because it is immutable yeah. which means if you have a collection of objects and you use that collection to render a list um, the only thing that you need to check is the list itself like if there's if an object is basically replaced with something new or not so you don't have to check a, like a big subtree of your application and that makes it actually faster than yeah yeah yeah, and the the other part of the question was uh, the the whole re-rendering part because I was I was reading a document that was floating around on Twitter about uh, Angular's render um, 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 architecture that they're mm -hmm. thinking about. It was not there was no implementation detail. It was just conceptual, and they were basically saying, okay, we have the um, Angular API, like the framework API, and then then we have like a renderer layer that is basically the abstraction of of what whatever render um thing is basically render actually rendering your ui and then you can just exchange um the 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 render api no the render the the render implementation yeah, yeah. exactly the render implementation yeah, right. that's the idea yeah, yeah so exactly. so so that so, uh, so that reminds me of of React. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that's great. So I'm I'm not I'm not super into React actually, not at all. But um, as you also know, uh, the the Angular team is collaborating with other teams uh, mm -hmm. at Microsoft with TypeScript, but also with the, the uh, React team um, in order to share ideas and exchange ideas and and to see what could also work for the Angular framework. And I think that this kind of thing, um, especially the the um, the visual diffing, is something that uh, they borrowed from there. Yeah. So yeah, it's a it's a good step. Yeah. Is this collaboration that you just uh, touched on? Is that is that something new? Because it seemed like um, 
I mean, I have not been following Angular at all. Um, I looked at it very briefly when it came out. I'm actually a back-end developer. But they seem to have a big emphasis in, in part of the keynote, at least, to, to make sure that um, they announce or they say that they, they're collaborating with many different companies and groups and uh, looking at different technologies and right. sort of doing that all out in the open. And I was just curious... Um, if that's something new now um, or if they've always done that? Well, I would say they actually kind of always done that, um, mm -hmm. at least with, with the community. So um, they're really like uh, integrating the community into everything. You can really influence the whole project as, as a community member, which is super great. And um, you might know that there have been some sort of like there are always some haters around that say, yeah, like Angular versus Ember and like Ang Angular is shitty and Ember is better and, and, and something like that. And um, this is something that really, it, it doesn't help anybody. And I think w with the fact that uh, the Angular team realizes, hey, we can actually work with the Microsoft type, uh, TypeScript team together in order to work on this uh, language extension, or we can work with Yehuda Katz from Ember together in order to um, uh, uh, help with the implementation of decorators or, or whatever. Um, that's actually something that um, is, well, it shows the outside world you can really just be friends. You can just collaborate and it really helps everybody. It, it's much better than like hating something or like saying, no, we don't want to work with like a team of another project together because actually they're competitors or whatever. Right. Right. And I, I think that's, that's totally awesome. And uh, yeah, of it sort of disputes, it disputes the, the statement that I've heard. Um, I don't know who, exactly who said it, but you know, the, the claim is, or the accusation is, is that Google is the one standing behind Angular and therefore Google can, um, you know, decide without any kind of, um, you know, influence in what direction it will go and they will in the end serve their own purpose. Yeah. Yeah, so um, but this, what I saw in the keynote sort of, yeah, disputes that to me at least. Right. So, I mean, of course, in, in, like Google itself uh, has its own requirements for the framework. There are like over 2000 apps right now in turn at Google that uses Angular. And it is um, like they, they're, of course, interested in, in pushing that thing forward and, and building a framework that sits on top of uh, future technology that are also pushed by Google. Um, but in the end, um, this is not something that uh, controls the entire development process of the framework. So it's really about collaborating and, and everybody can really be part of it. And in fact, um, the team always, really always looks for feedback or asks for feedback whenever, whatever they do. Like the whole process of developing Angular 2, uh, like from the beginning on, like last year and I think May or April or whatever, I think it was April, they uh, started writing those design docs. So the design docs that are floating around today in the web, they're already out there since one year. And you could, you as a community member or just as a normal person like me, you were able to really like 
uh, jump in and read that document and comment on that document and tell the Angular team, for example, why some things are not good and why you would change things or maybe you can tell them that they forgot something or whatever. Um, so everything was, or like most of the stuff was actually super open and you really had a chance to follow the, the entire development. So um, I think that's, that's awesome. It's not that it's like super closed. It's not that um, the community can decide everything. Of course, there are still things that, that are uh, decided by the team, but um, they really integrate the community and also, yeah, teams from other companies, which is, which is cool. Well, isn't that also kind of where, what you're doing? You have a, a, a very popular component or part of... Um of Angular, Angular Translate, and you gave a talk at uh, ng-conf, and you did that, I think, with a Google core team member or someone from Google. So how, how is your, what is your involvement now in that? Because it sounded like you were working with them or, yeah, in some, in some way at least, participating in, in moving or developing the, the translation feature inside of Angular now. Right, so... Um... Basically, it all started last year at NGO where I uh, met Igor the very first time personally. And um, he told me there about the uh, idea of bringing a full, like a first class story for internationalization to the framework and if I would be interested in, in working on that. And um, so I was actually, from the uh, implementation perspective, I, I didn't write any any line of code, like not a single line of code. It was actually mostly uh, Shirayu's work. And, um, but yeah, so they asked me if I would be interested in, in helping out, giving a talk there. And uh, because I, yeah, because as you said, I'm, I made this Angular Translate thing, which is currently like almost one year uh, driven by the team and not by me, which is also great. Wow. And um, so, I think that that's the reason why they kind of reached out to me um, and because a lot of people also asked, what is it with Angular Translate then? Like if there's like a real IT&N solution for Angular all of a mm -hmm. sudden. Um, so yeah, uh, so I, I'm, not, I'm not in the core team. I'm not uh, super involved in the actual development. I mean, I'm attending weekly meetings and, and everything, but I couldn't find time to actually write code for it. Uh, but yeah. So how, how does that developer advocate title fit in there? Is that something official or something you you uh, you do on your own because you like or love ang uh, Angular? Yeah, right. It's it's the letter. So it's not that ah. I that I have this title from Google or something. I'm <laughs> I'm like advocating that framework. I'm I'm speaking at conferences and meetups and mm -hmm. running those workshops and and that's basically it. Got it. Okay. Very cool. Yeah. So, so also to make that clear, I'm really just, just a community member, so I'm not like anything special or anything. Yeah, the, the, the developer um, advocate uh, uh, addition to your bio also makes sense to me because it seems like with the work, the work that you're doing at DotRam uh, and the blogging and, and so forth, it's just like uh, you're just trying to help developers and and promote like um professional development and stuff like that yeah right right 
Yeah, cool. So yeah, so that that um, so that's interesting. So I also got the impression that you were actually working working with uh, I don't I didn't get the name of that core uh, team member, but that you Shirayu. Were, it's Shirayu. Ah, uh, Shirayu. Yeah, that you were working right. with him together. Um, but 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 basically, since you're attending the meetings and stuff like that, you're still kind of uh, involved conceptually. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Okay. Or and it's not only me. Right. So there's like everybody who's actually um, interested in helping out or in just uh, being in the loop is is able to attend those meetings. Right. Yeah. So there's no restriction. Cool. Uh, and are you are you working on uh, Angular Translate at all anymore? Well, in fact, uh, the last few months I didn't really, because. Um, so the the time when I was actively developing it, uh, I really needed to solve my personal problem, and and then it was really like a super fun open source project. Mm -hmm. Now I have like three people working actively uh, on it and and providing feedback on issues, um, and I haven't done any release since almost a year now. It's really like driven by the team, which is awesome, and and I'm really thankful that they are there helping me out and and driving that project because. I can't make it anymore uh, in, because of yeah, time and everything. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's still an open source project. It, it still stays there and it will always be there. And yeah. Cool. And so what, are, what is the biggest difference between what you did and what is going to happen in Angular 2? What specifically? Ah, okay. Um, well, so the... The IT&N solution that comes to Angular 2 and also Angular 1.4, um, or starting with 1.4 at least, is actually a solution that is not really specific to the framework itself. So, um, so what, what Angular Translate does is it is a completely client-side solution. It's a module that uh, consumes some JSON data, and um, this data is basically used to uh, provide translation to your application. And you, as a as a developer, you're able to um, through like uh, simple service calls, you're able to change application languages at runtime without refreshing the entire page. Uh, with the Angular or with the IT&N solution that comes to the Angular as a like as a core feature, um, that's more like a, um, it's not entirely client side. So it, well, it's both more or less. So first, it it addresses the problem that you don't have to uh, you don't have to write translation IDs. Angular Translate has the concept of translation IDs, where one translation ID maps to a specific translation, and you use those translation IDs throughout your uh, application and your templates. In the uh, ITN solution for Angular Core, you can just still write uh, in whatever in whatever language you want to write. So it can be German, it can be English, or whatever. It's just you just write your templates as you always did, and then you have an extraction tool that extracts all the messages from your application templates and exports them to a uh, file format that your translator actually understands. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. And then your translator takes those files, translates them with its own software. This software, again, gives you a new bundle of, of uh, translation files. And then you can take those files and uh, generate templates again. So basically what you can do is um, 
you, you you extract all the messages from a template, so you give them to your to your translator, you get them back, and then you can decide if you either want to um, generate templates for each language uh, and then serve them depending on the language from the server, or uh, you can also uh, let your client side app consume them on the client side as JSON. Mm -hmm. um, and that would be something that would be uh, baked into the Angular core. And another thing that it addresses is that next to the fact that you can just write normal text, you can actually provide context to your translator. So you are able to annotate your HTML templates in a way that translators uh, get the information of your annotations in order to have context um, for for uh, to to translate those trans uh, to translate those messages. So, for example, if you have a uh, select uh, box somewhere where you have the word uh, crane, then if you give that particular word to a translator, what does that mean? Like, is it the crane the bird or is it crane the machine? Right. So you, uh, you want to provide your translator uh, context. You want to provide him descriptions and meta information about this particular message so that your translator knows what it actually is and what it's actually all about. So, and, and this is also something that the extraction, uh, extraction tool understands. So you can annotate your template and then you get your translations with your meta information and that you give to your translator and you get better and high quality translations back. So. But does that mean that, that the the meta information stays in the templates? Exactly. The it's exactly right. Okay, well, so you, well, it blows it up have your to. HTML a little bit then too. Right, but what you can do is you can still you can just basically generate your template again in the same language language without the meta information. Ah, okay. So so the, the meta information is just in your initial template, the, the like your sort of source template where mm -hmm. where your uh entry language is and or or the 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 language that you use to um to translate your application um so no, nobody nobody will will prevent you from generating yet another template in the same language but without the annotations because the the template generation i don't think that it will add the annotations uh, because they're only uh important for extracting right cool uh, that sounds really good. So that also means um, basically there is some sort of a standard for for translation, like software or something like that. That so, that software uh, that translation companies or services right. use. Something right. Like it turns out that there are actually quite a few file formats that translators use, like something like uh, PO files or XLIF files. Those are files that um, there are like more or less something like. XML files, they, they look like XML, and those are imported uh, into their software. And then the software is able to provide that information in a nice UI. So the translator, again, uh, in the end, just sees the software that, that the translator uses and uh, exports the, the uh, translated data at the end. That makes a lot of sense. That's, that's really cool. Yeah, the cool thing actually is that you don't have to be in an Angular application in order to make that work, right? Yeah, so yeah. This, this works with any template. You can even take your old, uh, I don't know, like WordPress block or whatever <laughs> and uh, do the same for it because it's really just HTML. And, what, uh, and the thing that extracts 
the initial language and uh, and the descriptions and stuff like that is that like a node module or something or what is that? right exactly you can actually find it currently at uh, on github under the angular uh, organization and then it's the i18n project that's where shirayu is currently working on the uh, extraction tools and the generator tools another feature that already landed in the uh, angular 1.4 release candidate is uh, core support for message format syntax inside Angular uh, expressions. So in order to um, in order to make pluralization and gender selection possible, uh, th there's um, a standard, uh, an ICU standard that's called ICU message format, and it's like a syntax that allows you to very um, like in a very flexible way um, making messages. Uh, in, in like pluralizable and uh, allow them to be um, or allow them to select gender depending on what you are uh, depending on your data so for example if you have a text like you have n messages then n is a dynamic value right mm -hmm. and n could also be just one and in, in English it would be you have one message mm -hmm. but if it's more than one then it is you have two messages so and depending on your on your language and on your region, uh, your message structure can change entirely. And uh, message format helps helps out with that. And and this standard, like the syntax, is baked right into the into the interpolation uh, expression syntax with an additional module. But then you can really just use interpolations and then write message format syntax inside your expressions, which is really powerful and really cool. Wow. Um, and it seems like this is definitely, this is, I mean, I think this, this, this sounds really amazing, especially if you, if you're like, a, like an app that makes money, you're of a company and, and it's like a lot of text and you're really actually sending that stuff to a translation company and you're paying for it and stuff. Is it is it possible then to mm. also, like if you and your friend, you want to translate maybe in one or two languages or something like that, just to generate something that's easier for, that somebody can just use a text editor for, like a JSON format? Like, does it give you options to to extract into different formats, or is it just uh, that's those? a that's a good question? Yeah, sure, you can do that. So, so the tools that that uh, the Angular project will provide um, will first of all support the most common um, file formats that translators use. But of course, there are, there will be APIs that everybody can write plugins for whatever file format they want to support. Mm -hmm. So in the end, you will also be able to just generate JSON or just a, like like a plain XML or an XML that follows a specific structure for your particular use case or whatever. Hmm. So um, there are no restrictions at all. That's that's really awesome. That's yeah, cool. I think so too. Uh, I've been I've been hearing. Um... I think it was on the keynote they mentioned Ember CLI that that they were talking to the people from Ember CLI and something Ember CLI something something in some other talk or document that was related to Angular and I'm wondering um, if if they're trying if they're also kind of uh, if you know anything about that uh, um, that there's going to be some sort of a CLI Angular CLI or maybe a CLI system that's just going to work for Angular and Ember or something like that. Do you know anything about that? Right. So also for that, there's a weekly meeting, and um, 
the the goal is that there will be a uh, command line tool something like ember cli that helps angular developers to scaffold uh, angular applications but also run tests with them and maybe even deploy them um and also end-to-end -end tests uh and and uh, serving um like serving those applications with a web server or whatever mm -hmm. um but it it shouldn't be too restricted to to angular itself and like it should be uh flexible enough that it can like cover almost every use case so that you can decide okay i do want to uh start or create a new angular application that sits on an express server or whatever like something else so you should be able to decide that with that tool um i'm not sure what the current state uh is of that tool currently i know that they're that they're working on that so and this is also mostly driven by the community um but yeah so there's something in the making as well and, cool. and as you said, they're they're collaborating with the Ember CLI team. So there's the the creator of Ember CLI is actually attending those meetings, and uh, he's uh, sharing codes code bits of Ember CLI in order to make something work for Angular too. And I think they said they're going to base it on on broccoli too, just mm -hmm. like Ember CLI. Um, but is so what you said is that. It sounded to me like there there was going to be a certain degree of flexibility to to let you decide maybe even the application structure so there's no strict uh, way or they're not going to sort of bake in or di not dictate but suggest best practices for application uh, layout for example and, and file structures and all that kind of stuff um i think i think they will do that so they it, it will be like that you can um so it is important to enforce best practices because that was also like a kind of problem in angular one and if you provide a tool that scaffolds applications for you and, and, and it uh, uh, considers best practices, that would be like pretty much perfect. So I think it will, it will use best practices in, in, in some kind of way, but you're not restricted to that. If you say you don't want to have a controller, like, like a folder where all your controllers are in and you have a folder for all your services, you want to have something entirely different, then you should be able to... Uh, to use your own file structure, it should still work. But again, um, I'm not sure what what the state of um, that tool is currently. Yeah, it sounded it was pretty early, but it's uh, it's interesting that they're they're doing that. And in fact, those those meetings are happening since I don't know, quite a few months already. So and and they they're probably very far by now. Um, but yeah, yeah I so saw a tweet uh, with Stefan Penna wearing uh, that's the the Ember CLI guy. Yeah, he was right. Wearing exactly. a, an Angular shirt that was yeah. pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they are also talking to to Joe List then, I guess, who made the broccoli uh, build system. Yeah, um, Angular Angular two is actually currently uh, also moving from Gulp to broccoli. Yeah. Okay. So, do you know? Do you know why? I mean, is it is it just before? I guess it's the performance. Well, I saw somewhere that um, I'm I'm not sure what the performance with broccoli is, but the nice thing about broccoli is that it that it works with file trees. Yeah. Um, like so, with Grunt, you have the problem that Grunt introduces this like its own kind of DSL layer in order to configure tasks, and then you have all those kind of uh, temporary folders and everything in order to move files from one place to another. 
with Gulp, you have like kind of solved that problem because you have like you work with streams. You have an input and you get an output. There's mm-hmm. no side effect. Um, but still, you have some problems if you stream like one like file by file by file by file, and if you have dependencies in those files, then it can be quite hairy. So yeah. Broccoli kind of addresses that by um, yeah working with with file trees. So I think that's one reason. Um, but I'm I'm not sure if it if if performance really was a problem. I I think I saw somewhere a comment by Igor where he said that it turned out that Gulp doesn't work so well for very complex file structures, and it might be mm. true because the Angular project is really complex because it's like a single source tree for both uh, JavaScript and Dart, right? So okay. you still have facade files that that are concrete implementations for Dart and JavaScript. Hmm. Uh, yeah, that that makes sense. I mean, what what I know about broccoli is that it it, um, it works with those file trees and and the dependencies. It works very well with the dependencies and um, the performance part. I think it does also perform better than uh, than Gulp or Grunt when it comes to really big projects because um, it turns out that um, I think mostly. In most setups with Gulp or Grunt, you always have to like rebuild all of the files. If you know what I mean, like if you want to make a build out of your files, or if you have to transpile something. <clears throat> in many yeah. cases, you just trans. You have to because they are all depending on each other. You have to transpile the whole thing, and and Broccoli um, is specifically built uh, in a way so that it only needs to to change the files that actually changed. It doesn't matter how they depend on each other it just changes the little things that you just changed and and that brings performance when it comes to huge huge projects that's the problem that the ember team had basically and and okay that's what they solved with that that makes sense cool yeah and i think that that makes sense uh, for angular as well because angular much like ember um i think is used very often to build really big projects and um in so in that case it seems like broccoli is a really good um good tool yeah for the build process yeah make make total sense yeah <clears throat> yeah cool um yeah this is um do do you have do you have some something else on in your notes uh, henning no i i pretty much asked what i i was uh thinking of um Maybe just a quick question on ThoughtRam. That's something that you started uh, with a buddy of yours, I guess, and he introduced you to uh, to Angular. Is that how that worked? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, sort of. So, so the buddy you're talking about, his name is Christoph, and uh, uh-huh. he was actually. I, I kind of had the feeling that he was the first guy, uh, uh, like finding Angular in Germany. <laughs> like, like a few years ago, I saw him like, like sending this tweet where he wrote. Oh my gosh! I just found Angular, and I have no idea why nobody's talking about it. That's awesome, and because he... so he started it in Germany. <laughs> I'm not sure if he started it's his fault. it, but um, so he 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 played with Knockout JS, and it also has this concept of of view models, and um, so he was searching for something like that, and then he stumbled upon Angular, and and it was just plain awesome, and. He's very good in recognizing potential in things that are in very early state. He's also playing with Rust, for example, the Rust programming language that mm-hmm. is uh, 
almost released. Um, so yeah, he kind of showed it to me because to me it was back then it was not very clear what is the big thing, what why is it so cool, and and how does it help, and and yeah. So and then yeah, I kind of kind of uh, got into it, and and now. I love it. <laughs> so and, over time, you guys just discovered that, I guess, um, there was a need or, or, yeah, a need for, for training. Because ah, I guess you guys do, right. you guys do um, Angular and Git, right? Right. So, so, um, so the story of ThoughtRam is basically, Angular, uh, Christoph, Christoph sta uh, started this uh, Hanover.js meetup here in Hanover. And um, this is actually also how I met him back in the days. Um, and so, and then after that, we both uh, were running this, this meetup. So we were both organizing it and, and everything. And we like it because we like to talk, we like to share our knowledge, and we like to get in touch with people and, and, and share ideas and everything. And then someday we thought, hey, um, actually, already the, the very first time I met him for the very, very first Hanover Jazz meetup, he, he told me, like, he said, Hey, like, are you actually interested in also like running workshops in some kind of way? And I was like, yeah, yeah, we we can do that someday. <laughs> so <laughs> so something like that, and that has been years ago. And then, like last year, uh, at the beginning of last year, I talked to him. And I said, hey, like, do we actually want to do it? Like, do we want to bring it to the next level? Like, running meetups is nice and everything, but I think running workshops is is, is also cool. Let's let's try it out. And so. We started with ThoughtRam as a project. So the idea was to uh, that we we want to um, run workshops, like public workshops, where pretty much everybody can attend who wants to attend, uh, and and provide high quality content. Uh, and we really want to be good at what we are doing. And because we are using those tools in our daily basis, it just makes sense. And um, so we started with the first workshop here in Hanover in order to try out if there's actually interest. And it was great. We had uh, like just, I think, eight attendees or something, but it was still cool. And it was a good workshop. And then at the end of, uh, at the end of last year, we announced that we, or no, at the end of this year, at the end of last year, uh, we announced that we also will do Angular workshops because we are using Angular since over three years now. and. Uh, and then, yeah, it just worked out. And, and then we, uh, we also needed to create a company because, of course, we are earning money with it. And um, then you need that kind of things and those kind of structures. And now we are like uh, kind of um, following our dream that we travel around Europe uh, to different countries, different cities, but not only Europe, um, also other continents. And run our workshops there. So we we organize them as public events, but we also do in-house workshops at companies. And uh, yeah, so so Christoph, for example, he just came back from Bangkok, and uh, we've been in Vienna and Istanbul and, and Amsterdam, and so and and we plan to go to Helsinki uh, in in September. So this is basically what we're doing, and um, and then we also do a lot of open source work and and currently build a kind of uh, open source product that helps us with our workshops. That's totally awesome. You were able to sort of turn that into, into a business too. That's really cool. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Great. That's insane. So uh, you both used to work at CouchCommerce, is that correct? Right. We're still working at CouchCommerce. Huh? Oh. It's, still a, it's still a full-time job. Uh, 
But the ThoughtRam thing is something that we do next to it. Because oh. we, 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 started, we started ThoughtRam as a, like as a side project. It just became a company. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. okay crazy because i thought because uh because i thought that you're just doing this full time now <laughs> which would be cool yeah but indeed are you are you giving this the so are you do you have to take vacation time to do the things or do you go only on yeah weekends? pretty much no that's yeah pretty much so the the very first workshop we did on a weekend but uh it doesn't work out so good because uh people don't want to attend those workshops on weekends. <laughs> That's true. I don't know why, but... <laughs> so, yeah, we're basically, we're taking holidays to work. Okay. And did you, uh, <laughs> did you ever try, did you ever try to, to get your company, in, like Couchcomers, involved in this so that they can maybe, like, sponsor some of it and give you a little bit of time or something? Well, like they, they actually, they, they do that. So, and they're very, okay. very supporting and very helpful. So, uh, and, and they, they also know that uh, they have a kind of, advantage of that as well because the fact that we're running those workshops and that we always try to be on the bleeding edge we we, we use that knowledge in that company too of right course. so it's like a win-win thing awesome okay really cool yeah so and what can you just uh just uh maybe give a, a brief summary of what couch commerce does exactly sure so so couch commerce basically has the mission to um take e-commerce websites that we know like from based on magento shops or Intershop shop or whatever like all these kind of the software that is out there and it takes those shops and makes it nice and actually runnable and workable on on mobile end devices so um if you have a if you have an online shop and it is nice on desktop and everything but if you if you visit it with, with your ipad or with your smartphone it is actually crap because it's just not optimized for mobile devices. Then CouchCommerce basically allows you to uh, install a module in your backend, in your shop system. And uh, we basically generate a front-end app for you that is based on Angular, right? It's a, like a single-page application. And um, <clears throat> so this application then basically communicates with that, with our API, with the module that you have installed. So this enables us to come up with an entirely new front end based on the data that your shop provides. Hmm. So then we're able to take like, a, like an old Magento shop and take the data and make a very nice single page application uh, that works with that data that has like things like, uh, like swipe features and pinch and, and, and zoom and everything. And that, that's all in the browser then. Cool. Yeah. Nice. And this stuff is all open source. You can go to github.com slash sofa. It's an SDK that we're developing open source in order to build this application. It's all Angular and it's also vanilla JS, but it's, there's a lot of Angular stuff going on. So if you want to check that out, go ahead. But it also has, does it also have something to do with uh, CouchDB? <laughs> it's like a, like a kind of trap, actually. So <laughs> okay. we don't do anything with CouchCommerce. <laughs> As far as I know, it was originally planned to do something with CouchDB, but for some reason, it, I don't know, it, it didn't work out for some reason. It, it was at a time where I wasn't there yet. Um, but yeah, so we don't do anything with CouchCommerce, uh, the, the, uh, with CouchDB. So the couch in the name is more about uh, like experiencing uh, 
e-commerce on the couch, like okay. shopping and everything uh, okay. while sitting at home uh, in the living room. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. As a developer, you just always think exactly, okay, this is a couch TV. <laughs> yeah, overthink you have, it. You have no idea how many people come to me like, oh, okay, so couch commerce, what are you doing with couch TV then? <laughs> and I was exactly. like, uh, sorry, I'm very sorry about <laughs> You have, you have yeah. to make an alias for developers. You just call it NG Commerce. Yeah, right. <laughs> no, you can't do that because then it'll be Angular or something. Well, it is Angular. Well, yeah, I know, but yeah. yeah. Oh. <laughs> anyway, okay, cool. And so, and Thoughtramp, the the site looks really cool. So, first of all, um, what is what what does the main the name mean? <laughs> That's a good question. I have no idea. <laughs> okay. No, no, no. It's, um, I don't know. We were just brainstorming and I, th I, just, I just thought, well, maybe something with thought would be cool. Like, because, like, because of uh, kind of integrating or involving the concept of like that people have a mind or something like that. Because we do like educational trainings, it makes just sense somehow. Mm -hmm. And the RAM is actually. I said we need something that is related to electronical devices. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I can. Well, that's funny because when when I read that, I was thinking of uh, Ram the animal. Yeah, you know? yeah. There are like different interpretations. Like some people think it's like a ram, like something that you push into something. Um, ah, okay. So I was thinking it, of a tram for some. Yeah, reason. you can you can <laughs> you can think about that too. So that's the nice thing. We have basically we 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 have our own ideas uh, on how this how this name came up, but we still just we leave the room for interpretations. That that's nice. So if you translate it into any language, the word doesn't make any sense at all. But I think it works nice together with the logo. <laughs> yeah, cool. Hey, who who made the who designed the website? It looks really awesome. I made it. You made and, it. And, yeah, there was no design at all. I just, it's like really like this kind of uh, prototyping approach. I just started and, and I just tried things out in the browser that, that I like. And then uh, this is what came out. Cool. And, and that video that you see in the beginning, is that actually like a video that's running in the background as a background image or something like that? How does that? How does well, you can actually that? inspect it. I think it's just, it's, it's just the video yeah, tag just in that easy. element. Okay. Yeah. It's really just the. <laughs> The video tag in the in the website it's but, just plain simple okay cool and the video that you see there is actually from our very very first workshop the good workshop that we mm. did here in hanover cool very nice yeah glad you like it <clears throat> yeah definitely yeah it looks very professional very modern it's very cool very cool yeah all right i think i think uh I think that was very interesting. Uh, with through all our questions, I think we can move to the picks. So um, I don't know, um, Henning, do you want to go first? Sure. Um, so I I don't know if you picked this already, but um, I I started listening to the second um, season of the Startup Podcast, and um, it is really really cool. Um, so in the first season, they followed their own company, which was. Um, uh, Bloomberg, he started, you know, from NPR, he started his own company and basically just did sort of a, um, a documentary on starting his own company, which was really interesting because he does um, very um, honest and, and sort of behind the scenes interviews, even with his wife and his partner. 
And this season, they're starting to follow um, other companies. And the first one they're following is a sort of a um, it's a it's an online dating startup uh, started by two very young um, women, and it's a really really cool story. So I've only heard the first episode. I don't know if the second one's out, but I can highly recommend that. Yeah, cool. I actually also started listening to it. I mean, I'm a little bit sad, I must say, because the uh, the first season of Startup, I thought it was fascinating. I really, really enjoyed that, where they were basically building up their own podcasting company. And uh, Yeah, because it's about podcasting. No, <laughs> yeah, but also I li just the guy and how intimate it was, you know, with, yeah. with uh, him and his wife. And it just was really the big, like, you were ki kind of uh, live witnessing the whole process of starting it and getting the funding. And so that was... Yeah, I that guess that's true. That was more closer to the... Um, yeah, it was more personal and private, I guess, because I guess he must have really been running around with a microphone in his house talking to his <laughs> wife. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, All right. Well, I still like it. and Yeah, um, no, it's still, yeah. it's still great, of course. Yeah, for sure. great at doing that stuff, yeah. Yeah. All right, and um, next one is a beer. I was on vacation, and a buddy of mine he uh, he saved a a bottle of Goose Island Bourbon County Stout, um, which I guess is something that's really hard to get. And it is um, well a stout. It's this completely black beer, and it's one of the best I've ever had. Um, I don't usually like the really dark beers because they they sort of make you thirsty after about three sips. But this um, was absolutely delicious, and uh, um, we'll put a link in the show notes. You can read about it and all the different flavor notes. I'm not really, you know, I don't know too much about that or how to express that, but uh, it just tasted great. And um, the last thing, um, again, has to do with podcasting. I just uh, was fiddling around with the with my podcast app, which is Overcast, and... Um, I found this thing called the nitpicky details and uh, it just shows how um, yeah how much thought went into developing this app which I, I really like by the way obviously because um, we you and I had talked about this back um, a few months ago and um, it's really really neat what all you can control and then um, so essentially has in there that you can you know turn off seek acceleration so if you hold a button to seek it gets faster and faster or not, depending on what you choose. And then you can have different uh, click um, sequences on your headset remote to do different things on the device, which is really neat. So, you know, one click obviously is play and pause. And then if you want to seek forward, you do a, a double click. Triple click is backwards. And then to the next episode is like short click and a long click. And previous is short short long so it's like morse code i guess but just uh, and then the same thing maps to to your car controls um which i thought was really really cool just you know something that uh yeah i haven't seen anywhere else yeah uh, <clears throat> that programmer is definitely he's very nitpicky <laughs> yes <laughs> he, well yeah he thinks about this stuff a lot yeah, i guess yeah. which yeah. is which is definitely fascinating i mean he, uh, yeah, he's one of the guys that I like to listen to when uh, when he's talking, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cool. 
Is that so? That was three, right? So, so you. Yeah, I have a fourth one if you want. Oh, sure, that. sure, go ahead. But yeah, so uh, I was in Florida and um, went through Orlando International Airport, and that is wow, simplicity and ease. I have never seen. I I used to live in Tampa, and that I thought the Tampa airport was good, but this one is even easier. And then. I mean, not to bash um, too hard, but coming to Frankfurt, oh my God, you know. <laughs> but what do you, do you explain it? Like, what, what do you mean? Well, so in, in, in Orlando, I mean, obviously they, you know, they probably have a lot more space there, but everything is laid out really nicely. So you, you can extremely easily drive into the airport and not get lost. Hmm. So, you know, you go to the, the terminal you're looking for, excellent signs everywhere everything makes total sense you can park your car walk through you know this tunnel it's all walking basically you can walk through the tunnel to get to the terminal and do your check-in thing and go through security and then basically split out into where whatever direction you need to go but everything is so wide open and just very um i don't know I can't even explain it. It's like super easy to find your way around. Whereas in, in Frankfurt, when I came, um, when we landed here, and maybe this is because, you know, you're tired after a 10-hour flight and walking for five kilometers <laughs> with two kids is not fun. But it's like we got off the plane and it was the very last, um, you know, gate at this insanely long terminal. So you got to walk <laughs> all the way down and then... It just kept going and going and going. And all of a sudden, there were like no more people. I was like, wait a minute. I got off with, you know, probably 250 other people. Where is everybody? So I thought I was lost. But I guess we just, you know, were either slower or faster than everyone else. But it just kept going on and on and on and on until we finally arrived at baggage claim. And um, I don't know. It just doesn't seem like it's, you know, obviously, I guess Frankfurt is bigger. But um, it was not as uh, as easy to navigate. Cool. Um, Pascal, do you have some picks? Yeah, sure. So uh, since we talked about immutable data structures, I can really recommend this uh, talk by Lee Byron, I think it is his name, from Facebook. And he gave this talk at ReactJSConf this year. Let's mm. talk about mutable data and React. So that's my first pick. I really uh, recommend watching this because he's explaining uh, immutable data and and what it means to be immutable and, and why it makes things fast and everything. Do, do you know if they're going to use um, in, in, the, uh, in Angular, if they're going to use or are they recommending to use the immutable JS library from Facebook? Um, I don't think they have any official recommendations, but they say that if you use immutable data structures, it's going to be faster. So it's up to you okay. what you want to use. Okay, got it. <clears throat> um, so immutable JS is just one implementation that you can right. use. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the, the second pick is if you want to learn Angular 2, then go to angular.io and check out uh, the quick start guide. And always go to the gitter or jitter.im chat. Mm -hmm. uh, for the Angular project, where you can find about 500 members of the community uh, that are there to help you out if you have questions. And then there was a third pick that I forgot. All oh, right, the third pick, uh, 
just a few hours or minutes ago, Microsoft announced Microsoft Edge, the new browser, mm. also known as Project Spartan. Uh, I think that's something everybody should check out because uh, I saw the video, um, the promotion video of Microsoft Edge, and it seems to be like a very, very awesome browser. Hmm. That's all I got. That's awesome. I'm very curious about that. I mean, that's completely new, right? It has nothing to do with the it past. Basically, it, it replaces the Internet Explorer, and it is it is a browser in in good actually. Cool. Yeah, they, it's not. Yeah, they had to get rid of that name. Stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. 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 Cool. Super. Super interesting. Um, <clears throat> my picks are first pick, of course, has to be uh, the biggest innovation in JavaScript lately, which is Elevator JS. <laughs> Have you heard about Ele Elevator JS? <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> okay, good. Well, Elevator JS is basically, I mean, it's Don't amazing. explain it. Don't explain okay, it. Just, okay. just, just, just tell the people that they sh should search for yeah, Elevator exactly. JS and then they will find it out. Yeah. And I'm sure it works with Angular as well. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but you have to tell the story behind of this because I thought that was really funny too, what, what you did or what happened on Twitter. Uh, so, yeah. Okay. So, um, Basically, I tweeted out this uh, revelation that I had, right? That Elevator JS, uh, Elevator JS is like the, the the biggest thing in JavaScript right now, and uh, and that and that tweet kind of went a little bit like for 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 my uh, dimension of you know how tweets get favorited and retweeted and all stuff. It, it went completely viral. It had like forty eight retweets and, and <laughs> like. 30 faves and stuff like that and then people were going like insane and i was just pushing it and like every yeah check it out blah blah and then uh and it was just like one monday night i just had fun like that and then it, some guy some guy that follows me or something i guess or saw the tweet he then he was currently at fluent conf giving um, a workshop Right, so he was giving this workshop, a JavaScript workshop, workshop um, in, in in while FluentConf was going on, and he actually uh, at replied me with a picture um, from where he made a picture of everybody like giving thumbs up, and he was like writing something like everybody agrees that this is the future, <laughs> something like that. Awesome. <laughs> that was so funny. That was so funny. That was great. Yeah. So definitely, if you if you don't know Elevator JS, you're missing out. Uh, uh, the second pick is um, a new uh, series that that just got launched a few weeks ago by Netflix, which is called Daredevil. It's basically the like uh, D Daredevil is is a Marvel comic, or yeah, is, or is yeah is a Marvel comic, and they made a series out of it, and it's just very gritty and dark and uh, and complex, and um, and I really enjoy it. I already binged watched it all all the way through so that was that was great and i definitely recommend it highly and um <clears throat> the the third pick is also a podcast pick which is a specific podcast by joshua topolsky it's called it's called the tomorrow tomorrow podcast and uh i'm i'm a, I'm a huge fan of joshua topolsky he he's he is um he was one of the he used to work at Engadget and was like 
a chief editor or whatever that's called and then he founded the verge with some other guys and uh and then he moved on to bloomberg and now he is uh and and while he was at the verge they had a podcast called on the verge or something like that and even and even yeah it was no uh was it on the verge no the podcast is called Ver vergecast which still exists but it was always really good when he was on and then he actually also hosted like a, a late night tv style kind of show about gadgets and tech and stuff like that which was really insanely produced and it was really good because he was the host because he's just a really good host and he's also like the te tech correspondent guy on the i think it's the jimmy fallon show or one of those shows um so so he's he's getting around and uh but he's a i find he's really talented like he's really good in at interviewing people uh and at this point in his career now he's so connected it's it's insane so he can get really good guests on the show and it's uh it's very entertaining uh, a very good show so that's my third pick all right awesome. Yeah, so um, I want to thank everybody for, for listening. Uh, you can find all the show notes for this episode on descriptive.audio slash episodes slash 17. If you have any feedback or guest requests, uh, hit us up on Twitter at DescriptivePod or use the feedback form on the website. And uh, you can find me on Twitter at hglattergutz. And uh, please, to help us out, go to uh, iTunes and give us a rating. And uh, where can people find you, Pascal? Well, I think people can find me on Twitter at Pascal Precht, which is just my name. The same goes on uh, goes for GitHub. And uh, yeah, I think that's that's basically it. Awesome! Uh, thanks so much for coming on. It was really great. Hey, thank you for having me. Yeah, it was a great conversation. Thank you. Thanks.